Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. Good morning. Hey man, that's so exciting. For me to watch that video and just see what happened there is really, really cool. You know, I always like to brag on our staff members. So if you get an opportunity to thank Dan Robb, our youth pastor, he's the man behind so much of this. So how about a round of applause just for our student ministry in general? So awesome staff team here. So we are in the midst of this series called Holy Mess. We're kind of in part two of this series. And if you were with us last week, we talked about the fact that that pretty much describes us as Christians. We're a mess and God is trying to make us holy. And last Sunday, I did kind of an exhaustive walkthrough of the messiness of the heroes in the Bible, from the Old Testament saints to the disciples of Jesus to the apostle Paul. And we learned that messiness is just a part of the Christian life. In fact, Paul described it this way in Romans 7. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Now, you could read that, and it could either make you depressed or encouraged, right? It can make you depressed to the point where you go, the Apostle Paul? I mean, he says, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I want to do. Even he can't get it right. What chance do I have? Or you could be encouraged and say, hey, even Paul struggled. I'm just like him. And that's kind of the road that I'm going down right there because there is this tension with spiritual failure. In Galatians 5.17, Paul says, For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. And so we're in this series called Holy Mess, and it was kind of inspired by my study of the book of 1 Corinthians. And if you weren't here last week, I walked through a whole bunch of passages from the book of Corinthians, just kind of detailing their issues, their messiness. And I would encourage you to go back and go online and give that a listen. It's pretty eye-opening. I mean, the things they struggled with included quarreling, spiritual immaturity, jealousy, worldliness, arrogance, crazy sexual immorality, like a guy sleeping with his father's wife and then boasting about it to the church. You know, that was going on at that church. A good number of them were frequenting prostitutes like it was no big deal. They were suing one another, believers taking believers to court. They were getting drunk at church during communion. If you think I'm making this up, I'm not, right? You thought our church was messy, right? I mean, the church at Corinth was a holy mess, a holy mess. Now, why tell you this? Well, I tell you this because messiness, if you're experiencing it, guess what? You and I have something in common with the Old Testament saints and with the disciples of Jesus and with the Apostle Paul and with the Christians in the early church. And dare I say the Christians here in the U.S. today. But here's the good news. God loves you in spite of your messiness. Romans 5.8 says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, this does not mean that God condones our sins, our faults, our unbiblical living. God does not condone our messiness, but he does redeem it. 
God doesn't condone our messiness. He redeems it. See, his desire is to change our messiness into holiness. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. And here's why I want you to get this so, so badly. Because as a pastor, I am saddened by and tired of and actually angry at Christians who criticize other Christians who don't have it all together. Legalistic churches that are just coming down on on Christians who are struggling, kind of like the Pharisees did in Jesus's day. People walking around uh, passing judgment on others, even telling them they might need to question whether they really are a Christian because they're not living up to certain standards, i.e. their standards. That bothers me big time. Why? Because it discourages Christians who don't have it all together, who recognize they're still kind of messy and it makes them want to give up. And so last Sunday, I proved both biblically and practically that we're all messy. And I kind of left us on this note. What do we do about it? Right? How do we move forward in light of this information? Well, I believe there are three paths that we can take in life based on the fact that we are a holy mess. Only one of them is honoring to God and truly helpful to us. But I want to talk about all three of these because the other two are very common and we have to avoid them. So let's walk through these together. Path number one. Okay, the first path that some Christians take when they realize they're a holy mess is what I call spiritual apathy. Spiritual apathy. What does apathy mean? Now, who cares? Right, apathy is I don't care. Apathy causes withdrawal. Right? You withdraw, you give up on your faith, you give up on the church, the caring community that you're a part of. Or some people, they don't give up completely, they just settle. They settle for their faith to lack passion, for their faith to lack power. And some of you in here, you're spiritually apathetic. Now, I don't have spiritual apathy, but I know apathy in other areas. For example, I have golf apathy, okay? <laughs> now, disclaimer, all you golfers, don't go hating on me, right? Don't go blowing up my inbox this week, okay, with emails. But I, you know, people ask me, Brian, are you a golfer? And, and I'm kind of like, yeah, I've golfed. I'm just not very good at it, okay? That's kind of my public statement. You want to hear my private statement? <laughs> I sure you do. My, my private statement is, no, I don't like golf, okay? I don't like it. I'm not into golf. That's just, it's just not my thing, right? I, I gave away my clubs that my dad gave me, right? I don't have five hours and $150 to waste being angry. <laughs> yeah, the wives are preaching now. Here we go. I'm too insecure to wear the plaid shorts, the little beret hat, you know? It, it, it's, it's just not me. That is not me. You know, if, no offense, okay? <laughs> Whenever somebody says that, you know they're going to say something offensive. Okay, no offense, but I also, I don't really consider it to be a real sport, all right? Oh, Lord, here come the emails. <laughs> I knew I crossed the line. Hey, hey, if I'm going to exercise, I'm going to go to the gym and lift weights, okay? I'm going to go where the men are men and the women some of them are bigger and stronger than I am, but that's, that's, that's where I'm going to go, okay? <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, I guess I could say, if somebody asked me, I guess I could say, yes, I'm a golfer, right? I have golfed. But honestly, I just don't have any interest in it. It's kind of confusing. I don't get all the rules, the traditions, the numbered clubs, right? Plus, there's all these animals involved. You got an eagle, a birdie. I think three putts in a row is a turkey, right? I, I'm just like, yeah, I'm apathetic, Okay. And I know you guys who love golf, you're looking at me like, what is wrong with this dude, right? I thought all pastors golf six days a week. What else do you do? 
how can you not golf? Well, here's the deal though. I'm making a point somewhere online here. Here's the deal. If I have golf apathy, it makes no difference in my life, really. However, if I have spiritual apathy, boy, that makes a difference. It actually affects every part of my life. It'll affect my character, my choices, my relationships, my peace, my discernment, my wisdom, my ability to be known by a caring community. If you and I have golf apathy, big deal. If we have spiritual apathy, it'll affect every domain of your life. And there's just too much at stake for you to go down that path of spiritual apathy. That's not the path God intends for you. So let's wipe that one out. Path number two is what I will call spiritual acting. Hey, this is where you just pretend, you perform. This is probably the most common path I see in Christians, I see in churches. But when you are a spiritual pretender, right? People who are spiritual pretenders, deep down inside, they know they're messy. They know they're messy, but shh, they don't want anybody else to know. And so they put on a spiritual mask and they pretend. And the problem with this is it leads to superficial relationships. Because when you pretend, you're only known by that fictional character that you've created for yourself. And that fictional character does not have the ability to love and be loved. Now, now pretenders, they always appear like they have it all together. Right? Always the Christian smile. Right? How you doing? Good, good to see you. Praise the Lord, God is so good. Always this plastered on smile. And you're going, hasn't your husband been out of work for a long time now? Oh yeah, yeah, it's just a minor setback. You know, trials and tribulations for those who are strong. Or didn't you, did you have to put your dog down recently? Oh yeah, but we just think that God needed a puppy angel, that's all. And see, when you pretend you lack authentic relationships, you don't let people close to you. But that's where real transformation happens. And there's another side effect to spiritual performing. You actually discourage other Christians. Why? Because they're fooled by your mask, right? They look at you, they think you've got it all together. So in your attempt to be Mr. or Mrs. Christian who has it all together, you're discouraging others. You know, personally, I am drawn to people who are kind of real and honest and earthy and struggling, not those who come across like they have it all together. Why? Because anybody who claims to have it all together is a fake. Right? Seriously, I have been around the block too many times to fall for the Jesus Jr. Act. And one of the reasons I love, love, love this church is because it's filled with a whole bunch of messy people who have had their mess transformed. Yeah, they've been saved, they've been changed. They're in the process of becoming more and more holy each and every day. If you're a guest with us today, there's a good chance you're sitting next to somebody who used to be totally screwed up, right? If you stick around, you'll hear stories, wild stories about abuse, affairs, anger, addictions, alcohol, depression, all kinds of stuff. And that's just from the leadership, okay? <laughs> hey, we all come from messy backgrounds. But you know what? Let me, let me encourage you to do this. Pick up the gospel sometime. Study the life of Jesus. Because if you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus hung around broken people. He engaged with messy people, people who didn't have it all together. As a matter of fact, I would go so far as to say he was drawn to those types of people, but he was nauseated by the spiritual performers. I mean, you don't see Jesus's anger directed at the thieves, directed at the prostitutes, but he was totally turned off by the religious pretenders, by the mask wearers. Look at what Jesus says about spiritual performers in Matthew 23. He says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses's seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do for they do not practice 
what they preach. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Yeah, tell us how you really feel, Jesus. See, if you're going down that performer path, pretending like you got it all together, you know what I think Jesus would say to you? Ali, ali, oxen free. Remember that phrase? You would say that phrase at the end of a game called what? Hide and seek. Yeah. It means come free. Stop hiding. The game's over. I believe that's what Jesus would say to you if you're a performer, if you're a pretender. Quit hiding. It's not getting you anywhere. It's your aunt's neighbor's sister's mole on her big toe that needs to be removed, all right? Come clean. Just come, let me try this sometime. Just put some of your messiness out there. And I guarantee you, you won't be alone in your messiness. In relationships, when you're honest, when you're vulnerable, that's where real freedom comes from. Freedom and confidence to live the way God wants you to live. Which leads us to the third path. Okay, this is the one God desires for all those who come to grips with their messiness in a healthy way. Path number three is what I will call the spiritual adventure. This is the person who says, no matter what, I'll keep following. In the midst of my messiness, I'm gonna keep following Jesus. And following Jesus is not a soft stroll through the rose garden of life, right? It's more like a stumble through a construction zone that's filled with dirt, bumps, mess, danger. See, a construction zone is the perfect metaphor because sanctification, it's a fancy term for becoming more holy, becoming more like Jesus. It means you're under construction, When you first put your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit grabbed a set of blueprints with your name on it and he went to work on you. And he's been working ever since. And when you're under construction, you're in the process of becoming holy, you're gonna do dumb things. You're gonna mess up. You're gonna be doing things that are not natural to you. So when you fall and when you fail and you will, okay, you pick yourself up, you shake it off and you keep following. Pick yourself up, shake it off and keep following. You know, as a kid, I never liked that phrase, shake it off, because that's what my dad would tell me all the time. Right? Anytime I was hurt, shake it off, son, shake it off. Which, by the way, is why when kids get hurt in the front yard, they run into the house and they call for who? Mom, right? Nobody calls for dad. Why? Because dad doesn't care. At least my dad didn't. He'd be like, shake it off, son. Quit crying. You're fine. He's like, I'd like to shake it off, dad, but the bone's sticking out. I can't shake that off. Hey, just rub a little dirt on it. You'll be fine. I get out of the way of television. Give me some ice cream, son. Right? So you shake it off. You keep following. Keep following Jesus. Even if you've got doubts, keep following. Even if you've got fears, keep following. Even if you're lonely, keep following. Even if you've got questions, keep following. Even if you feel inadequate, keep following. You keep following because I believe Jesus is less concerned with perfection and more concerned with desire. Think about this. Jesus, he's not really hung up on the fact that you get every detail perfect. And I I know so many Christians, they get caught up in this, right? I just can't seem to get this Christian thing right. You know, do I pray and then read the Bible? Do I read the Bible and then pray? Or, you know, how much do I give and who do I give? You're trying to figure out all these Christian gymnastics. And God is more concerned with your desire and less concerned with your competence. God is less concerned about competence, more concerned about desire. If you study Jesus, again, pick up the gospels. 
you'll see that Jesus responds to people of desire. A woman who desired to fight her way through the crowd just to touch Jesus's clothes. Bam, life changed because of her desire. Some friends who were so desirous to get near Jesus, they crashed in through the roof of a house, lowered their friend down to get him close to Jesus. That's desire. And Jesus responds to desire. I'm telling you, in all areas of life, desire is big. 38 years ago, when I first started dating my wife, Wendy, okay, she asked me, do you like to go boating? And without thinking, I just immediately responded, yes, yes, I do. I've never been boating before in my life, right? And if some dude had asked me, you want to go boating? I'd be like, boating? Why? No, not really. But when Wendy asked me, I was telling the truth about my desire. And she could have said, do you like to pour jalapeno juice in your eyeballs? And I'd be like, yes, yes, I love that. <laughs> okay, why? Because desire changes everything. And I just desire to be with her, whatever the environment. See how amazing desire can be? And Jesus, he looks into that messiness in your heart. He sees past all of your incompetence and he's looking for a desire that's longing for him. That's what he's after. So whatever your personal mess is today, know this. If God began a good work in your life, he's gonna keep his promise and continue that work. Philippians 1.6. I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Now, in the coming weeks, we're gonna talk more about how this whole process works, but let me just give you today a little four-step action plan for tapping into God's power source. These are steps that must be taken if you wanna transform your holiness, or messiness, rather, into holiness. And for those of you who are memorizationally challenged, I did you a favor. I based this on the alphabet, okay? A, B, C, D. If you don't know the alphabet, that's okay. God loves you in spite of your messiness. All right, so here we go. First, admit the mess. Now this one, you're gonna say, oh, well, that's just so obvious. Now I think a majority of Christians, they live in a state of denial about their messiness, about their sinfulness. Our pride gets in the way. We don't wanna face the truth and say, hey, I've got a sin problem. And here it is right here. But 1 John 1.8 says this, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Here's a good principle to remember. To stop defeating myself, I must stop deceiving myself. To stop defeating myself, I must stop deceiving myself. We've got to take an honest look at our lives, face the truth, and deal with the issues. You're not going to get healthy or holy until you admit your sin problem. And it might mean you've got to swallow some of your pride. You know, the Apostle Paul's pride hit rock bottom in Romans 7:24 when he cried out, what a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? You know, the Greek word wretched, teleporos, it literally means worn out from exhaustion. It means you have fought such an intense battle, you're totally out of energy. And once you're done struggling in your own flesh, you admit your problem, that's when God can finally step in and help. Second, you need to believe only God has the solution. You know, Jesus once said, I am the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And what he meant is you're not gonna really be able to overcome your issues. You're not gonna be able to become holy apart from me working in you. And, and that's just the truth. If, if you don't believe that deep down inside, I've seen this, you're gonna start turning to other sources to try to improve yourself. 
And to me, it's amazing how God is patient with us. I mean, God will just sit back. He'll wait for years, <laughs> decades, for you to finally exhaust every other option before you turn to him. And I see this all the time. People try self-discipline, the latest self-help books, counselors, treatment centers. Now, don't get me wrong. Those things can be very helpful. But in the final analysis, only Jesus can transform you from the inside out and make you truly holy. So you admit your mess. You believe only God has a solution. What's next? C is for crucify. Crucify the old sinful nature. That means to put to death the old sinful nature. Now we see this theme repeated all throughout the New Testament, crucifying the old sinful self, the enemy within. Look at Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Okay, what exactly does that mean? Put to death what belongs to that earthly sinful nature. Let's talk about this. I think Paul really summarizes it in Galatians 2.20. This is the way he puts it. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, I think the key phrase here is I no longer live. I no longer live. In other words, to allow the spirit to control me and change me, I can't put me over him. In fact, anytime I do that, I'm actually sinning. Let me give you a simple definition of sin. Sin is playing God. Sin is playing God. The term sin in the Greek, it literally means to miss the mark. What mark? God's mark. It's ignoring God. It's saying, I'm not gonna listen to you, God. I'm gonna do what I wanna do. I'm gonna do what I think is right. When you spell the word sin, what's the middle letter? I, remember that. I is right in the center of sin. That's the problem. I am the problem. See, I think that I know better than God. I think that I can choose better than he can. When Paul says, I no longer live, he deals with his I problem by crucifying his old selfish ways and living exclusively for Christ. That's the key to victory over the sin nature. Now, whenever I read Galatians 2.20, I'm reminded of an old story that revolves around the theologian, St. Augustine. Listen to this. Before his conversion to Christianity, Augustine lived a wild life. He often filled his time with wine and women, and he was known throughout his hometown for his worldly escapades. Well, sometime after his conversion, a prostitute who Augustine had known called out to him from across the street saying, Augustine, Augustine. But he just kept walking and made no reply. And thinking he must not have recognized her voice, she once again cried out, Augustine, Augustine, chased after him. But Augustine said nothing. Finally, in frustration, the woman ran ahead of him, planted herself squarely in front of St. Augustine saying, Augustine, it is I. To which Augustine looked up and replied, yes, but it is no longer I. You see, Augustine understood what Paul meant when he said, I no longer live. He saw himself as a totally different person, not controlled by his own desires, but by Jesus's desire for his life. And we all have that choice to make, a choice of who or what is gonna control my life. Because every day we're controlled by something, whether you like it or not. It's like the story of the Christian man who is trying to explain this struggle between the flesh and the spirit in his life to a friend of his. 
And he said, you know, it's kind of like this. It's like I have this black dog and this white dog battling inside of me. And his friend says, well, which one is the stronger dog? Which one usually wins? And he replied, it's always whichever one I feed the most. It's the one I feed the most. So don't feed that old black dog. Galatians 5.13 says, you, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sin nature. Okay, A, admit your mess. B, believe only God has the solution. C, crucify the sin nature. One more. D, depend on the Spirit's leading. According to scriptures, our job is simply to follow the leading of the Spirit in our life, to depend on God to fill us with his power and work through us every moment of every day. Galatians 5.18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Galatians 5.25, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. To that phrase in the Greek, keep in step, it simply means to follow. And in the coming weeks, we're actually gonna talk about some practical ways to keep in step with the Spirit, to follow the Spirit so that we can produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And this is essential. In fact, even that previous step, crucifying the old sin nature, that's energized by the Spirit. Romans 8.13 says, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body. Folks, we have to depend on the Spirit's leading for all things. Now, next week, Pastor Jason is actually going to dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 3, talk about what it looks like to build a life that truly matters. And then I'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 the week after that. But I thought it was really important to give you kind of an overview of the holy mess that was so prevalent in the church of Corinth and talk a little bit about how to deal with that before we dive into the specific texts in this book. And let me just close with this. God is not afraid of your messiness. Whatever your messiness is, think about it in your life. God is not afraid of your messiness. In fact, he meets us in our messiness and offers to change us, to make us holy like his son, Jesus. So don't give up or become spiritually apathetic when you see the mess in your life. And don't be a spiritual actor pretending like you've got it all together when you know you don't. Instead, go on a spiritual adventure with Jesus. Admit your mess. Believe only he has the answer. Crucify the sin nature. Depend on the Spirit's leading in your life. If you do, I can promise you this. If you do, slowly but surely, God will change you from the inside out. He will replace your holy mess with holiness. He'll replace the holy mess with holiness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just in awe of you, your incredible love, your incredible patience, your incredible grace, your incredible mercy. Lord, did you put up with us? Not just that, you actually love us with a deeper love than we can imagine in the midst of our messiness. God, I just pray that as we think about the struggles of the Christian life, that we would not just give up or become spiritually apathetic and go, nah, who cares? I pray that we wouldn't go through life faking it, putting on the, the mask. I see that in so many churches. People come in, put on the mask, pretend to be all right, walk out. Lord, protect us from spiritual apathy, spiritual acting, and instead help us to be willing to follow no matter what 
to go on an adventure with you and recognize it's not some kind of stroll through the park. It's tough. It's going through a construction zone, stumbling along. God, I just pray for my brothers and sisters here, and I don't know where they're at with their spiritual life. Maybe they just need to be honest with themselves and say, I got a problem here. Just admit the mess. Maybe they need to quit leaning on other people, other techniques, whatever it may be, to solve the problem and start turning to you. Get on their knees and and believe only you have the solution. Maybe they're looking at their life and they recognize, you know what? It's too much of I, too much of me, and not enough of you and trusting you. And finally, God, as we talk in the coming weeks about what it looks like to walk in your spirit, to keep in step with the spirit, to depend on your spirit's leading, I pray that you would just reveal those things to us, Lord. Help us to learn how to do that so that we might become more and more holy, more and more like Jesus. But God, thank you for your incredible patience that no matter where we are, you love us and you pick us up. You tell us, hey, shake it off. Keep following. Keep following. Keep following. God, give us the ability not to give up on you because you never give up on us. It's in Jesus' name we pray.